Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Figs and Kindness, we discuss two poems as a way into thinking about what we want to leave behind and what we want to keep as we focus on the year ahead. We're thinking about what are the lessons we learned from the pandemic and what do we want to carry forward with us into this new post-pandemic world. And one of the things we've been talking about is stuff that we've read that's been powerful to us, right? So we thought about having kind of a book club podcast or a reading podcast. So that's what this is. But what we wanted to talk about today were two poems. One that's kind of carried the both of us through the whole pandemic and another one that you just sent me the other day, right? And the first one is Ross Gay's poem To the Fig Tree on Ninth and Christian. And I was looking back through my notes and I don't know if you remember when you sent it out to the teaching listserv, but it was on March 27th, 2020 that you sent that out to everyone. So it was really quite early days in the pandemic that you shared that poem. But it's something that we talked about over and over and over again. And I went and read Ross Gay's book, Book of Delights. I read his book, The Book of Delights, and I had realized it's, it seemed to me when you sent me this poem that I'd never heard of Ross Gay. And then I realized that I heard him talk about the Book of Delights on NPR before and then NPR replayed his conversation about the Book of Delights early in the pandemic because delight was something that we were so lacking, right? And so Roskay's become important to me and this poem super important to me. And when you sent it out to the teaching listserv in March, you talked about how it's a poem about random slight sidewalk encounters with strangers, something that we were really missing in the pandemic, right? So do you want to talk a little bit about why the poem matters to you? And then we can move and talk about the Naomi Shihab Nye poem, Kindness, too. But uh, maybe we can start by talking about the Roske. Yeah, I, so I think what, what initially struck me about about this poem was, as you said, the sort of unplanned, unstructured interactions you know, riding the train, walking in, across campus, grabbing a coffee, the kind of the glue that kind of holds your day together and gives it a structure. The, the, the potential that there's always some surprise that could happen to you. I began to feel quite acutely the loss of that potential in my day because my day would just be really in a room, you know, yes. and zooming and doing my work, which, which, you know, I, I, I love my work and I, I experience it as being meaningful, but just these odd unplanned, the excitement of, of working and commuting in and living in, in, you know, in, in a huge metropolis, right. And all that has to offer. And to lose that so abruptly um, left One this the, big space, you know. That surprised me a little bit 
in myself. I knew that that really mattered to me. But I also knew that sometimes when I get interrupted at work, when someone would come and poke their head in my office, I would experience frustration or annoyance or kind of a sense of like, oh, I was just getting going with this project or, oh, I, I had set aside today to complete this task and you're taking, not you, Steve, but this. Well, I have, I am a head poker of the highest order. <laughs> I like that. Now I think about those moments with so much nostalgia, you know, the head pokers. The um, I remember one time uh, someone who I was just getting to be friends with, a colleague I was just getting to be friends with, poked her head in. And I said, how can I help you? And she said, I just wanted to say hi and talk about a delight, right? She's just like, I just feel like we haven't talked in a minute. And I just wanted to say hi. And I, you can't do that on Zoom. No. You know, it's just not 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 a thing that happens. Um, I'm wondering before we get too much further, if you want to talk a little bit about what happens in the poem, you want to describe the poem a little bit if people haven't read it, or do you want to and do you want to maybe say something about how you came to find it? And yeah. I think the, the the sentence or the phrase that stands out in the beginning of the poem for me is the city they say is a lonely place. Mm -hmm. until he asked the sound of a, of sweeping in a woman. In the beginning, he has like this kind of cynicism and he's almost dragooned into this relationship with these people because he's tall. And I'm, I'm good for things like that. I can reach high things. I was just going to read that line, <laughs> right? Because it's just a poem about finding a fig tree that's fruiting. And, right. and, and part of the cynicism is that the woman who's sweeping it up can't keep up with the fruits that are dropping, right? And it's a mess. And his first thought is about the mess of the fruit rather than, oh, wow, there's a fruit tree on the sidewalk and there's kind of free fruit for us. He talks himself in to enjoying that abundance, that bounty, right. right? And so his first thought is like, you know, you could slip and fall. This old lady's got a big chore. I got to keep going. And all of a sudden, then it's like eight or nine people gathered around a ladder and right. this all poet who are all gathering the figs and talking. And it becomes like this festival, this kind of right. just right. random, delightful fig festival on the sidewalk, right? And so it's so beautiful and it's so great that he starts out with that cynicism right. right even as he's a person who can say yes pretty quickly right the city they say is a lonely place yes until yes right until yes i mean until yes comes pretty easily to him but his resistance to the fun at the beginning i think is important to how awesome and random and fun it seems by the end here let's just read the part of it i guess i'm tall and so good for these things and a bald man even told me so when i grabbed three or four for him reaching into the giddy throngs of yellow jackets sugar stone which he only pointed to smiling and rubbing his stomach i mean he's really rubbing his stomach like there was a baby in there it was hot his head shone while he offered recipes to the group using words which I couldn't understand. And besides, I was a little tipsy on the dance of the velvety heart rolling in my mouth, pulling me down and down into the oldest countries of my body where I ate my first fig from the hand of a man who escaped his country by swimming through the night 
and maybe never said more than five words to me at once, but gave me figs. Mm. It's the whole um, way that sensual experiences are so evocative and they stay with us. And so when I think about this poem in the context of the past, you know, the pandemic and, and isolation, first there's the loss of the chance encounter and being in that encounter and knowing that I'm never going to see this, these people or this person again, but I'm just going to enjoy this interaction. Just chatting with someone and while you're waiting for the train or, yeah. on, you know, whatever. But then there's also the loss of the day-to-day -day physicality of, of being a person in the world, the smells and the touches and the tastes. I make this joke a lot in the Zooms. I wore my favorite cologne for the Zoom, but unfortunately <laughs> you don't get to enjoy it. Just to be silly, but also as a way to kind of think about my inability to use my body in space, right? To move closer or further away. We sit and you know, you invite me to your office and you're always brewing this tea, which has a smell. You know, maybe it's apple cinnamon tea or something. And whenever I smell that somewhere else, it will remind me of you and your office. Right, right. But, but all of that is like gone. So these, these encounters via Zoom, they, they're like a flattening of, of what it means to be in the presence of another person. You know, because people who teach in Zoom, how do we account for that flattening? And one of the, the things I like about, about this and, and the poem about kindness, which I guess we'll get to, is from my perspective as a you know service provider at the university, in a lot of conversations, they moved from the technical, what are the available tools and how do I use them? Like, how do they function? So the technological to the instructional, how do I teach in this space now that I've learned how to use Zoom? Like, okay, what's a good Zoom? How do I build community in it? How do I like evaluate my students? But I think toward the end of the, the spring semester, we moved more, I don't know what the word is, the spiritual, the moral. How do I nurture and support my students in this environment? How do right. I make deep and meaningful connections with them? So grades, audio quality, you know, really diminished in importance in, until the, the humanistic components, at least in the conversations I was having, really emerged as what was vital and what we wanted to hold on to. That's right. And what I love about the Naomi Shihab Nye poem, Kindness, is the beginning, right? Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. And she keeps talking about that combination of the way that kindness depends on pain and loss and sorrow. And I think that that helps us understand because all of us who are teachers lost that ability to be in the presence of our students, that loss helped us become more empathetic to our students and our students' losses. Where I was in a meeting with an administrator, a webinar, and an administrator said, at another university, not a Fordham person, said, one of the things that's great about the pandemic is we found out we can do everything we've always done on Zoom. 
And so it opens up a whole new kind of pathway for us. And she was kind of talking about it from what I think corporate people call like an enterprise perspective. Like there's a new market that's open for us. So we can do face-to-face and we can do Zoom. And now we know that we're completely competent at Zoom. And I'm not disputing our competence, but what I love about both of these poems is the way that they remind us of the texture of three-dimensional life and what we get from those encounters with real people in real spaces. And some of those things are annoying, some of them are funny, some of them are delightful, but knowing about the remembering what we've lost, right? You know, you know what kindness is, you have to lose things. And I think the gay poem, keeping that in our conversation, you're in my conversation, and in in the conversations we had across the university, helped me remember what it was that I couldn't do anymore, so that then I could think about What does that give me? One of the things I think about that you can't do in a Zoom that's got more than two people in it is you can't make eye contact with one specific person. There's no way to direct your gaze. So if someone's talking for too long, you can't make eye contact with the chair to say, can you take over the meeting? Like, what's going on? Raise your raise your eyebrow and say, come on, let's uh, move the agenda forward. But you can't even make eye contact with a friend to, to say, um, to smile at someone in, 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 in specifically. Or if someone sneezes, you can say bless you to the group, but you can't look at the person who just sneezed in a caring way and and say bless you to them right and so um that's a that's a genuine loss because when we think about how we learn and how we pay attention in a class right those moments when someone's attention waxes and wanes are moments when we as teachers intervene and we'll say you know hey julia you know you just yeah. have a sense that Julia needs to be pulled into the conversation or that Antonio needs to be pulled into the conversation. There are, there are nonverbal cues. I mean, there's a lot to be said for embodiment, right? I mean, there's just no way around that, yeah. you know? And to pretend, in, in some sense, we, we wanted to pretend that this, this is just as good. And in some ways, you know, we were able to do a lot. I don't want to undermine or diminish all of our efforts of the past year but as we as we move into this stage of like reclamation like what is it that we want to reclaim and and what do we want to you know kind of take with us into this into this project right i want to hold on to that that's what i'm struggling to kind of articulate here is not it's i don't think what we're talking about is better or worse but I do think we're talking about being attentive to the difference. And that's what was troubling to me about this woman's enthusiasm about, you know, it's just as good as. I actually think it's different from, and it's different from in really interesting ways. And keeping alive what I love about embodiment has helped me think about what I love about online teaching. 
So during the pandemic, one of the things that I did several times was to lead online reading groups through the Center for Fiction in Brooklyn. And it's a kind of adult book club, uh, continuing education. It's non-credit, uh, just a fun way of talking about books with other people who are readers. And I facilitate the conversations. And ordinarily, I do it in Brooklyn. And there are about five or six people who come. And we meet four times over the course of a couple months. And we read four different novels. During the pandemic, we met over Zoom, also four times over the course of a couple months. But because it was on Zoom, we could have 15 people, and they were from all over the country. And some people who never could have attended in person could attend, be it because they live in Westchester and Brooklyn is a long commute, or because they live in Arizona and they never could ever go to anything at the Center for Fiction. But now that it's online, they could attend. And so I met people I never would have met before. So now I feel like both ways of doing these reading groups are really good. And they're different from each other in interesting ways. I guess I'm not really talking about the affordances of technology so much as a, a thinking again around the very simple things in life that are integral to teaching that we took for granted, right? The five, 10 minutes before and after class where we just all BS'd. The times right. would like the last day of the semester, I'd order pizza and we'd, we'd eat it together. Just these symbolic, but deeply sort of physical and meaningful and emergent experiences that are like the glue that hold the 15 Zooms together, <laughs> you know? Well, and I feel like, you know, insofar as you and I, were successful or helped people or facilitated good conversations or learned from our colleagues during this time, one of the ways that we were able to do that was by kind of keeping track of like, what are the parts of an ordinary face-to-face -face class yeah. and how do we make them happen? So one of the things that I started doing in my Zooms was the check-in, right? And that's something I learned from Christiana Zenner that I know from other colleagues. I know Professor Greer does this, right? So going around the room and having people say just some little thing that's no stakes, lighthearted, you know, if I'm going to the bagel store, what's your bagel order? And everyone says what their bagel order is and it, and it takes the place of or it it fulfills some of the function of that banter. One of the things I wonder about is when we go back into the classroom, having thought so much about things like these rituals of coming into and coming out of the class, do I continue the check-ins in the space or do I go back to I kind of stumbled on that, right? I kind of stumbled on that opening banter uh, was really loose and not very thoughtful in my pre-pandemic teaching. Now I feel like I have listened to people talk about it. I've theorized it. I've put it into practice. I've reflected on my practice and I have a new way of doing it. So now face to face, it doesn't make sense to me that I'm going to go back to just say, so how was everybody's weekend? in a kind of loosey-goosey way, I think it's going to be transformed. And I am hoping it's transformed in a way that's kinder, more interesting, 
more helpful for setting people up to learn. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, Zoom presented, you know, obviously it's mediated, but also it was, it revealed certain things about our our home lives, right? Who, who we might, where we might live, under what conditions and with whom, whether or not I have a cat. So <laughs> that, that maybe served a humanizing function in a way, right? But I think it's it's again I, I don't i don't know if, if i want to set up some tension between the, the present and the absent so much as really thinking more about that that middle part of the of the venn diagram which i think emerged toward the end of of our lives on zoom or the diminishment of those lives <laughs> on zoom really which has to do with this idea of you know, an, an ethic of care, right? Like, how do we, and obviously there's a lot of pushback around, um, you know, academic integrity and, and cheating scandals and so on. And I'm not, I don't want to position those as being uncaring because I, I don't think that's the case. I don't want to put caring for the students at, at odds with academic integrity, but I, I think that that's something, a space I'd like to wrestle with a bit. I'm um, in my own practice going forward is, you know, what does a humanistic kind of teaching look like within a bureaucratic structure? How, how does that work? Um, and is I'm it really countercultural, right? Is that a countercultural project of some kind of reformation or is that has that always been at the heart of our teaching and it was there for us and and we failed to to maybe embrace it as fully as we could have i'm sorry i feel like i've interrupted you twice now no and my notifications keep going off no you haven't interrupted me i'm i'm, I'm thinking about this because i'm really i've been worrying over this because Early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of talk, you know, and it was initially very technology based, you know, do our students have laptops? Can they even log in, right? Yeah. Around equity. Right. Um, and I was initially sorry for the loss of the illusion that our students were all equal when they entered the classroom. And I'm very conflicted about that. And I said something about it to someone and was really got some very strong pushback from them. And I'm not entirely sure that I agree with my interlocutor, but my initial feeling was that there was, or my feeling early in the pandemic was that there was some power and some value in the illusion that all students were students and the way that i understood that was kind of everyone wore jeans and t-shirts right and it was often very hard to tell wealthy students from poor students because every 21st century student is in some combination of an outfit of jeans and t-shirts right and unless you really really know a lot about fashion and have someone who's really showing out in expensive clothing, it's very difficult to know uh, economic or class distinctions between your students. So you perceive 
you know, racial differences, you perceive gender differences among your students, but not money differences, right? And you can't tell by looking at someone their degree of preparedness for a particular course or for the discipline that you're teaching them. And I think sometimes that's all to the good. But the person who pushed back was pushing back from a real place of, I think, deeper thinking about equity than mine, saying that that was kind of a white privilege position, that if you thought that everyone was the same, you were missing the boat. You were failing to understand the intensity of the disparities and the struggles behind your students. I'm not sure that I ever thought everyone was the same, but I understand her point too. And I think that part of what we saw and seeing the different student backgrounds and seeing, you know, those who log in with brothers and sisters in the background and those who log in from, uh, you know, clearly unshared private space with good Wi-Fi, um, having seen those large differences and having worked with our students through the very large differences in what they're going through in how, how hard COVID was for them, how do we carry that knowledge into the classroom in a way that fosters learning and empathy? Yeah, because obviously those differences were always there, but we pretended they weren't. So is, is equity and justice mean that I'm just going to pretend we're all in the same space right now? We're all equally advantaged in this? Can I really create an equally advantaged space for my students coming from such diverse backgrounds? Is that possible? So it's like it's like that cartoon with the, the, the three children trying to see over the fence, right? I was just thinking about that, yes. Yeah, one has no box, one has one is standing on no boxes, one is standing on one box to see over the fence, and the smallest is standing on two boxes to see over the fence. So if the number of boxes one gets to see over the fence is a measure of equity, of course, one could just take down the fence, really. But I think what's so resonant about the poem kindness is its simplicity. Just be kind. I think it's a good word because it's so sort of anodyne, right? It's just like, just be kind. <laughs> How hard is that? But she's saying that the, the, what's really interesting to me about the poem is that there's this idea, yeah, just be kind, it's simple. But then her telling us, like really digging into what that, like what, what you need in you to understand what kindness is, which is a deep kind of acceptance of your own losses and the recognition that others have lost as well. And it's only from that place that you can really understand kindness and be kind yourself. For me as a teacher, that's a fundamental value. Yeah, I don't want to hurt anyone. That's not why I'm here. I'm not here to fail people and screen them out. I just, that's not how I see what teaching is. I just don't see it that way. But when we think about these things like equity, I mean, one of the things I've seen 
in a certain kind of misguided response to equity that's not about a tech tool, right? That's the kind of, let's count how many students of each identity I call on in a class and norm that against the demographics of my class and then vow to do better next session. But another kind of, you know, misguided, felt to be kind equity response is underestimating people. And so you hear people say, well, you know, so-and-so, you know, English is not their first language, and so I'm really not going to push them very hard. And I'm just going to boost their grades. Instead of thinking through what does equitable teaching look like actually? Yeah when people arrive in a room with differential facility with the material on the first day? The first step is really recognizing, which the pandemic has helped us do, is the, the pervasiveness of these inequities and mm -hmm. how these inequities have real effects on students' ability to thrive and learn. So I think that that recognition may not i don't know how widespread that is but i think that's the first step i don't know if we're equipped in this or any other conversation to like figure out what to do with that but just understanding it right and acknowledging it and maybe communicating to the students that you know i I'm, i i understand the world is a really complicated place and you don't all come to me as blank slates you all have your own experiences and backgrounds right, and maybe right. times when you need kindness from me because things happen. Well, that's, that's what I learned from Rebecca Sanchez and the people in the um, disability studies advocacy space about how we talk to people about, and you and I use this in setting up the Blackboard Classroom online, how do we talk to people about getting help when they need help? Yeah. And instead of labeling uh, human beings as disabled or not disabled, or as the kind of person who needs help or the kind of person who never needs help, what you do as a teacher is you say, everyone needs help with something at some time. Yeah here are all the resources for help. I am a resource for help. So it may be that, you know, certain kind of mathematical computational skills are hard for you. It may be that you have uh, depression or anxiety. It may be that you are trying to figure out what your major is. It may be that you're tr struggling to find a thesis statement. You know, there are a lot of reasons why you need right. help. Right. And so let's just, and one of the things that's that's so great about that um, is that teaching people to remember to ask for help is so central to the project of learning. How do you learn if right. you if you don't give yourself permission to say, "Wait, I don't understand that." Well, I mean, I think even that's a huge hurdle in in many instructional spaces, right? It is, and, and I think this ties into the classroom you know, managing classroom discussions topic of earlier, that sometimes classes can devolve into a club, a core group of discussants with a leader who is the instructor and everyone else who's just like an audience, you know? And so 
I mean, I don't want to go back to let's just, you know, now that we know what we know, what, what do we do with it, right? We're morally implicated and not just around persistent inequities. I think one of the things I would take away from the pandemic is to, is not to pretend that we're all just like units moving through a system. But there's got to be some way to make spaces that are more kind. I love the word. I love the word. In in Virginia Woolf's novel, Mrs. Dalloway, there's a character who's a German-British woman who's been fired for her job during World War One because she refuses to denounce Germany, right? And so they're like, perhaps you'd be happier somewhere else. So she loses her job and Mr. Dalloway gives her a job as a tutor. And she's a bitter person with good reason. And she thinks about rich people who want to be kind. And she uses this word kind in this kind of bitter way of a certain style of generosity for show. And then as she's thinking bitterly about this, oh, Mrs. Dalloway, she's just a rich person who's trying to be kind. And then she thinks, except for Richard, he'd really been kind. And I love that moment when she pulls herself short and thinks about the real kindness that she experienced from someone who knew that she was fired and gave her a job. And it doesn't solve her problems, but it does make the financial crisis she's in slightly less acute. And so even in this moment where this angry person is pushing back on kindness as meaningless or just for show she won't let go of kindness as a thing and i love that twice over podcast is available on soundcloud stitcher and spotify with new episodes appearing twice each week for host and guest bios and show notes please visit our website twiceoverpodcast.com you can follow us on Twitter at TwiceOver1 or email us at TwiceOverPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.